Here we go. Today is Sunday, August 13th, 2017, and this is episode 199 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you today, sir? I am so good. It hurts. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. We've got a little little line of weekly shows going here. That's kind of nice. Yeah. It's almost a, almost a trend. Almost. Almost. It's, uh, you know, and, and we've got a couple of, a uh, lot of travel coming up in the fall, so might be a little more challenging to record on Sundays, but we'll figure something out. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, you know, kind of on that point, we will, um, uh, I guess next be in, at DerbyCon the last week in September. It's then, true. Then, um, then we will be at the O'Reilly Conference over, Hall- uh, I guess right before Halloween. Mm-hmm. And we will be hosting the Ignite Talks, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's the name. Yeah, of we it? were de- we were described as infamous Inf- on yeah, the webpage, which, which I think is like invaluable and inflammable, oh. right? Sure, sure, I'll right. go with that. Right, which means that like we're really, really valuable. So, <laughs> or, or I'm sorry, really, really, really famous. Yes, yes. So, mm. so yeah. Um, and and by the way, this the call for papers is open. I think these are the uh, the five the short five minute talks, right? Right. Yeah. If you don't if you don't know about Ignite, basically you prepare twenty slides. They auto advance every fifteen seconds for a five minute talk. And then sometimes after we have a little fun where we do slide karaoke, where Jerry and I prepare slides people have never seen before. And they have to talk to them for five minutes on an auto advance. And, and, and that is damn hilarious, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's good times. It is good times. Let me tell uh, you. And, and by the way, you can get a, a discount if you use a, a, the discount code SECURITY20. It's true. 20% off. That's right. That's, that's the kind of love we have for our listeners. Absolutely. And then, uh, and then after that, in uh, March of next year, we will be at Tactical Edge. It's true, in lovely, scenic, historic Bogota, Bogota Colombia. That's right. Mm-hmm. I told my mom that I was going today. She she's she was a little concerned. <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, I I think the uh, the older crowd tends to have the, the the kind of the previous mindset about Bogota hanging over their head. Jerry, we are the older crowd. I, I know. I was, tr- I was trying to be generous. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, just just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. I should have probably said that a little bit ago. Uh, Retroactively to the beginning of the show. Yeah, that's right. It's been a eventful week, though. It it certainly has. It's been a lot shaken in the info security world this week. Certainly has. So, um, So speaking of that, the first story I have for you tonight is... From the register, and the title is Salesforce Sacks Two Top Security Engineers for Their DEF CON Talk. Holy cow. Uh, so it's, it's like the 90s all over again. It, it really is. It really is. And then in, no. the, in the 2000s, yeah. there was That's true. One of our colleagues, no. uh, in fact. Yeah, that is true. One of our colleagues. Though that was a little different circumstances. Those, was... those folks went ahead with the talk knowing that they may lose their job. This yes. is not quite the case here. Correct. Correct. So, um, so apparently th- uh, two individuals working for Salesforce.com, um, Jason, a person named Jason Schwartz and John Cram, uh, they, they had developed a open I source. I see your Schwartz is as big as mine. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to go there. Uh, anyway, I, I, by the way, I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for Mel Brooks to, to come through with his promised second. second I, I heard it was in pre-production. Is I it? mean, maybe uh, that's a lie, but I heard that. All right. Well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, for those who don't know, one, I'm sorry. Two, Google Spaceballs. 
three, you'll be better for watching it. Carry yes, on. that's right. That's right. I I, uh, I made my my kids watch it, and they were uh, they thought it was going to be torture, and uh, I don't think they've ever laughed so hard. So. Pretty, pretty well, funny. when the threat of a beaten is on the back end, of course you're going to laugh hard. That's that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. Anyway, uh, anyway yeah. So these, the so, so yeah, these two uh, these two people had apparently gone through their internal processes to get approval to deliver this talk regarding meat pistol, which is a anagram of Metasploit. And um, you know, it's it, as far as I can tell. I don't. I, I unfortunately haven't had a lot of time to do research on exactly what meat pistol is, but it's described as effectively a uh, you know an alternative to interpreter, I believe. Uh, so you know, yeah, it seems to be an internal developed tool that they use to enhance their their red team activities, which they were part of the red team yep. and the offensive security team at at Salesforce, and this was something they built to make their jobs easier and they thought would be good to share with the rest of the community. In fact, they were trying to open source it so they could release it to uh, the rest of the security community. Yep. yep. And uh, so apparently before, shortly before their talk, uh, the, the Salesforce tried to contact them and, and um, they, they delivered the talk and by the end of the talk, apparently they were in fact fired. And, and now it, to be fair, we don't know for 100% certainty that these two events are combined. As that's that's a, a very good very <laughs> We good don't point. know if there's correlation or causation here. Uh, nobody's talking. That's, that's uh, a good point. We don't know why they were fired. All, all we know is uh, by the end of the talk, they were fired. So Now, this, of course, led to a firestorm of outrage on the Twitters, of how this has a chilling effect and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it may, but just, I would say, I bet there's more to come of this story because we don't know the full story. Yeah, I'm a little surprised that, that uh, sale, you know, cause Salesforce is kind of taking a pummeling. And, and I, I am a little surprised they haven't given a little more indication of, you know, what if it, if it wasn't as it appears, that they didn't try to clarify... To, to some extent to help clear their name, which kind of leads me to think that maybe in fact this is what happened, but um, maybe, I mean, there's a flip side to that. Another possibility is that they feel very confident in their reasoning, but they're waiting for the right time fair. to release it. Yeah. That's, if their lawyers are involved, that's also fair. Yep. I, I don't know. I'm not defending Salesforce. I'm not taking their side. I really don't know. And I'm trying not to jump to any conclusions. Yeah, I no, you know it's it's interesting, and and I think that it, I, I've I've been pretty critical for a long time about you know that, and, and I've I've said some you know unpopular things that I've taken some heat for, like you know that defense. You're gonna have to be a little more specific. I know the defense isn't sexy, right? And and one of the right. reasons that defense isn't sexy is because we typically can't go you know to defcon and talk about the stuff that we're doing and right. and historically it's been you know it's been very red team centric and one of the reasons is that you have all these kind of you know innovative security companies who are trying to jockey you know for for a place in the market and you know that they're, they're using those talks as a you know as a means of uh, of getting their name out there and showing you know that the quality of the talent they have and I think this is, you know, assuming it is what it appears to be right. for a second, right? I, I think this is, even though this is, a, a you know, more of on the red team side, I think this is kind of symptomatic of the, the bigger concern I have that, you know, it's really difficult for security people who work for, you know, traditional company to get up and talk about their security programs. Well, we saw something similar to this one when, when there was a live tweeting of a pen test recently that caused endless controversy. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And it's tough because we can learn from those situations. As long as everybody's in agreement that it's okay to publish that, those details, it's fine. But uh, it's certainly not okay if it's the, the customer and the, and the vendor don't agree to that. But if they've all agreed to that, that's great learning opportunity for the rest of us. Yeah, I, I I actually am, and I've I've said as much to the to the 
two people involved and i i think it's it's really very enlightening to to actually see the process that go through and the thing the types of things that they find and i'm i'm happy they do it but the you know there 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 seems to be a pretty big backlash that you know oh my gosh they're creating this huge moral hazard and you know companies shouldn't have to opt out of this and my understanding is that you know the 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 people who are doing this actually go and ask for permission it's it's like yeah they wouldn't even opt out they they ask for permission they would not last very long as a as a provider if they didn't i mean come on that uh, i mean there are contracts guys there's steam at works there's legal bodies surrounding these sorts of engagements this isn't a fly-by-night sort of thing that well if it was it certainly wouldn't last very long they would get sued into oblivion right but i have learned so much from either doing a pen test or being on on the receiving end of a pen test it's certainly not a panacea of security but there's a lot to be learned from it and i wish i could talk about all the things i've learned from my current employer but i can't not you know it would be unethical it would violate my ndas and it would put my current employer at risk because i know where the weaknesses are where the where the the, the skeletons in the closet are and we don't want to help the bad guys but if you can obfuscate that data and you can remove the identification around who it may be. Hey, that's some great info. Yep, that's right. And and by the way, speaking of drama in the infosec industry, holy cow, there was a big dust up between uh, Carbon Black and a company called Direct Defense. So so we we have yeah, a little 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 bit of a dust up. Little bit of a dust up, yeah. So so there's this company named. Uh, direct defense and their their president wrote a blog post that accused carbon black of um, you know, basically having a a badly architected product which was causing customers of carbon black products to leak terabytes of data and and what what they you know what they were accusing carbon black of was uh, sending Files their their carbon black response product was sending files into virus total and for those who don't know when you send something in the virus total it doesn't you know it's it's not ephemeral it gets stored and and researchers can come in and analyze things that were were up which is a well known and understood feature of virus total it, it, it is it is and and uh, and and so it, in this uh, in this blog post the the CEO or the president actually called Carbon Black, the, this is a quote, the world's largest pay-for-play data exfiltration botnet. All right, so before we go any further, in the interest of full disclosure, we should tell you that Jerry and I both personally know and have worked with the CEO of Direct Defense. Just for whatever that's worth, putting it out there. Yep. Carry on. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, it, obviously, Carbon Black was uh, was was pretty horrified by this blog post and pointed out that, in fact, y- yes, Carbon Black response can do that. However, it is an optional feature that is off by default, and when you go to turn it on, it actually warns you about the specific concern that was you know, that was raised. Also for the record, direct defense did not talk to carbon black at all before publishing this blog post. Correct. They, um, you know, they, they ended up contacting the organizations whose data they found in virus total. So basically I think the, 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 the genesis of this was direct defense was trolling through, um, you know, data they were getting out of virus total and they saw a, they saw data. They saw correlated with. Well, they say they were working with customers yeah. and understood. You know, found. Yeah, either way, yes. Yeah. They 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 say that they stumbled upon this in working with their customers on engagements. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. So now, the 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 really funny part about this is well, there's a lot, but specifically when. Direct Defense was confronted with the fact that they didn't talk to Carbon Black ahead of time. They asked, well, why didn't you contact Carbon Black? And they said, well, because we didn't consider it a vulnerability. We just, just considered it a function of how the tool is architected. Right. 
that's a really interesting slippery slope. So at the end of the day, let's say I find something that is a poor architecture in, say, Windows. That gives me just full moral credibility to avoid any sort of disclosure to Microsoft. All right. Noted. <laughs> anyway, I'm slightly off topic, so continue. Sure, sure. So there was a, you know, there was a, a blog post by uh, uh, by direct defense carbon black responded saying you know you, you you misunderstand and by the way you've kind of violated the the norms of responsible disclosure by you know by going public with this rather than coming to talk to us and then as you mentioned direct defense responded back saying you know um we didn't we thought this was an architectural problem not a vulnerability which i don't really understand uh, I don't understand the nuance of that. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then obviously this created a lot of buzz in the industry. And there's a, there is a, a, another article from the register, which, you know, kind of followed up with, uh, with the C, the president of, um, uh, of direct defense and <laughs> the, the, the president, I'm trying to find the exact quote. I can't find it right now, but he, he effectively says, yeah, I, I kind of, this, paraphrasing right but i i uh, you know I, I knew this was a stretch but we weren't getting traction with this you know with with the fact that people were uploading uh confidential data into virus total so you know we saw this as a as an opportunity to go big time yeah so uh, the original quote came from an interview with bankinfosecurity.com and i've got got the article here uh and this is the 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 author which is Jeremy Kirk, and uh, the title of the article is Here's How Ugly InfoSec Marketing Can Get. He basically is interviewing uh, the CEO of, of Direct Defense, Jim Broom, and uh, basically the, this portion of the article, Broom acknowledged to me in a phone interview that the blog post was a stretch. He says Direct Defense has been trying to raise attention around data links leaks related to the broad sharing of political potentially malicious files, but it hadn't gotten much attention. Quote, that didn't get a lot of play, so we decided to go with a more sensational title, end quote, he says. The blog post is titled, Harvesting CB Response Data Leaks for Fun and Profit. When queried further about his company's assertion that the situation would be, quote, nearly impossible, end quote, to fix, Broom says, honestly, that would be a bit of sensationalism. <laughs> so, uh, As you might imagine, the backlash against direct defense was rapid and unrelenting over this situation. Yeah. And it, it certainly seems well-deserved. Uh, but then it got more interesting. Yeah. Then people started to realize that, Oh, direct defense is one of Silence's top resellers. Yeah. And the Silence being a direct competitor of carbon black. Right. So now people are starting to say, well, was this a hit job put out by Silence? And, of course, Silence said, nope, 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 wasn't us. Had nothing to do with it. Not our thing at all. Wasn't us. And, in fact, uh, Silence said, the blog was independently researched, opinions and work of the direct defense team. They are a member of our reseller community, but Silence did not participate in any manner with the blog they published. Now, what's interesting is Silence is certainly no stranger to controversy. Just a few months ago, they were accused of generating custom, quote-unquote, malware for testing in a bake-off of particular samples of malware that only Silence would trigger on, amongst other potentially, I should say, reviewed as ethically challenged behavior uh, by the security community. So it's interesting. I don't know. I, I don't know if Silence was involved, but they are. They were accused of it. Uh, Jim Broom on the Silence, uh, president of Direct Defense, and the Silence and piece said, "We work with many vendors, partners, and Silence is only one of them. We work with competitors of theirs as well. The only reason Carbon Black was called out in our fundings was that all the keys we found were traced back to their Carbon Black response product. I'm sure that if our analysts had found keys belonging to other vendors, Silence included, we would have mentioned them too." Our approach to security is one of brutal honesty, and part of that is keeping the vendors honest when we see something that is putting our customers at risk. Brutal honesty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. mm-hmm. Um, one more thing I want to read. So when you turn this function on in Carbon Black, 
Here is the warning you get when you turn this on. Okay. Quote, by electing to enable the scan unknown binaries with virus tunnel feature, your server will send unknown binaries to Carbon Black with your consent. By electing to enable share binary hashes with virus, virus total feature, your server will send binary hashes and other metadata to Carbon Black with your, descent, with your consent. Each binary and or hash and file metadata, as the case may be, will be submitted to virus total and governed solely by the terms, services, and privacy policy of virus total. Carbon Black shall not be responsible for this submission or, an, or for any act or omission by virus total. You are hereby advised VirusTotal makes the metadata publicly available along with scan results from dozens of antivirus products and VirusTotal also makes the files available to VirusTotal partners. You must determine whether to elect to enable this feature at your sole discretion. A checkbox designates you are opting in and thereby electing to share this information with Carbon Black and its alliance partners in the manner described. That seems pretty clear to me. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not really ambiguous. <laughs> it's, there's, there's, there's not a lot of ambiguity there so so i i'm going to be clear i think direct defense massively overstepped this was a pr grab uh well they said as much i mean they said as much an irresponsible pr grab that caused undue stress and anxiety in the industry and by customers uh and you know shame on direct defense they should have done this absolutely but you know, I, I think it it does point out that you know a lot of a lot of these reports, ha, you know, have you know uh, maybe non-obvious motivations, right? And this this may just be one that we, you know, it's, it's a little more obvious. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I certainly support people calling out vendors on mis- when they misbehave, but we really have to be mindful that we're doing it intelligently. And this seems far too motivated by uh, a greed factor on direct defense's side to gain notoriety and publicity for their firm. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. Well, so moving on to our next story. This one comes from Data Breach Today, and the title is OCR Tells Organizations to Step Up Phishing Scam Awareness. And, um, you know, th- there aren't many articles that that make me hyperventilate and breathe into a paper bag, but this was probably one of them. So I like the first sentence. Employees are still failing or still falling for phishing scams that are leading to major breaches, including those related to ransomware attacks, such as WannaCry. Hmm. (sighs) Yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah, we could spend a whole show just dissecting that sentence. Yeah, so, so yes, yeah, starting on that happy note, um, you know the 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 whole point of the article here is that uh, the OCR is is berating organizations that you know to to improve the secure uh, sorry the security awareness training of their employees, and they point out that you know the allegedly right the uh, the breaches that are attributable to these kinds of of issues have grown a whopping 10% in the past 2 years which i think is actually probably below you know kind of below the the the, the overall trend right so um you know that's may not be as as significant as uh, is is there they're pointing out here but but then there's a you know there's a whole back and forth discussion about the utility of security awareness training and it really left me kind of f- pretty frustrated because you know they they they'll make a point they make a point that you know we we uh we do really bad job a lot of organizations do a really bad job of security awareness training like some organizations they just send the security policy to their employees and 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 consider that training and and by the way that's not training you know here is what is training and, oh but by the way that's not enough right like <laughs> that's that, that kind of 
that kind of training won't actually stop many kinds of attacks. But by the right. way, there are other kinds of training that you can, you know, implement like phishing awareness training and, you know, phishing simulations. But by the way, even that isn't good enough because, right. you know, there's some really sophisticated fishes and then they, and then, uh, so anyway, it's, um, I don't know. What did you think? I'm, I'm, I'm getting myself worked <laughs> up again. I'm really angry. I, I, uh, I really think this goes to something we've talked about over and over and over again, which is that fishing is a psychological warfare situation that's really, really difficult to solve, especially with training and awareness. I, I really think technical controls paired with awareness and, and, and training is a better approach. And I think... I think we make a mistake thinking that training or phishing simulations is sufficient and that the problem is just that our users aren't smart enough. That is not the problem. That, yeah, that or, we or have properly, bad guys. Or not properly trained. Right. As this article Agreed. says. Our, we have bad guys that every day are looking for ways to exploit psychological weaknesses that we all have to get people to do things that they want them to do. That is not something that you're going to widespread train everybody away from doing on a regular basis, especially when the adversary is constantly changing their tactics and finding new and interesting ways to push push the envelope on phishing. Right. I've seen incredibly effective phishing. In fact, I, I just recently went through some anti-phishing training that was relevant 10 years ago. Oh, look for typos. No, that's not the case anymore. We likely have to keep pursuing technical controls to really have a chance at this. And there are good technical controls out there, but I think we, we need to be realistic about this. So for instance, you know, there is some things you could do. You could, for instance, mark every email that originates outside of your organization with an external tag in the subject line and then yes. train your people to be incredibly skeptical of anything that has external on the subject line. Yep. Right. There, there's there's a technical control paired with training that makes sense. Heck, you could even set up. You know, if people are using Outlook rules or Outlook, you could set up Outlook rules to turn external emails red in their email list, as one example, and start training them. Be very very skeptical. The other thing is, we now have built this shame around falling for a fish, where people are de-incentivized to come forward, report and work with security if they fall in for a phishing attack. Yep. Because it's a shameful act. You were tricked. You were dumb. Right. You know, little Bobby in Nigeria doesn't want to send you money. That is not the situation here. That's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with sophisticated corporate attacks that are very, very smart or they wouldn't be succeeding. Now, there are times when we can look at something and go, man, how did they fall for that? But the difference is we're security professionals who do this every day, all day. I sleep on sheets that have CISSP study materials. I'm saying we live in this world. Right. Yep. Bobby, the sales guy, doesn't. It's not fair to him to expect him to be at the cutting edge of cybersecurity. Well, I, I, I think one of the fundamental problems I have with this article is we're coming at this problem as security people. And, and, and so kind of like you said, right, you know, we, we, we do live and breathe it, but we also live and in, in, in the nature of our work is often fundamentally different than the people who we're talking about here, right? Our jobs do not typically involve us day in, day out, you know, processing emails and, and opening right. attachments and, and things like that, like a lot of these people do. And, and so there's, you know, there is a limited amount of, you know, if, if you have, if you have a, you know, a finance person or an HR person or a recruiter or somebody like that, whose job, who's their normal workflow involves them, you know, receiving emails from all over the place and opening attachments and doing stuff with them, you know, expect expecting that you're going to have a dramatic, uh, you know, ability to, you know, up their 
up the effectiveness of their ability to discern a you know a a, a malicious resume versus a a non malicious resume is 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 frankly laughable. Agreed. And this is where we need to help our users to to just put the onus completely on our users to figure this out is irresponsible at best. Yeah. Yeah. Then, uh, you know, there's a, there's a consideration in, in this article about, you know, is it, is it appropriate to punish employees who fall victim to one of these things? And, and the, uh, you know, the, the consensus is, well, only if they fall for it and they haven't taken the training or they haven't updated their, their computers and, and you know, th- things like that. So, um, you know, I, no, no, if you have people not taking their training, you know, that's a, that's a separate thing. Like, I, you know, you've got a, you've got a different problem there that you need to, to address. And I'm not saying, by the way, you know, I, I don't think either of us are saying that, that training isn't important. I think training is important. And in fact, by, you know, it's mandated, you know, such as by HIPAA, it's, it's, it's mandatory. And if you don't do it, you're, you know, even in the absence of a breach, you could be fined in an audit situation. So, you know, it, it's certainly not, it's certainly not that. My point is, you know, you, you shouldn't be waiting for a breach to realize that someone hasn't taken their training or they haven't updated their, you know, their, their laptop. That's, I don't know, th- th- this, I have a, and, and, I think that a lot of the content in here came from the OCR. So I'm not really necessarily picking on the author of this article. I'm I'm probably more picking on the OCR, the Office of Civil Rights. Sure, agreed. But I think they're just replaying a, a script that is pervasive right now, which is it's the user's fault, train them better. Yeah. Yeah. Now now you know ha- having said that, I I think in, in in if you if you if you zoom out for a second, we are seeing, you know, when we talked about we talk about it in spades on the show, right? That ransomware is really pervasive, and I think that in large measure, this you know the the, the guidance that OCR is trying to push out is in response is in response to that, you know, to that trend, and we're we're seeing incidents, you know, where where PHI is being destroyed by ransomware. And so they're, I think the OCR is trying to be, you know, they're trying to, to be proactive and do something, you know, put out guidelines or, or, or you know, some kind of material that to help organizations avoid the, the downside. But, you know, honestly, you know, when you start talking about, like, you know, avoiding ransomware like WannaCry, you know, by by avoiding phishing emails, it just kind of shows how wrong-headed they are. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I, I do think phishing is probably the number one sustainable sustained threat out there. Yes, and we do have to address it. Correct. And I'm not faulting the OCR for trying to trying to address it. I just am not on board with their recommendations. Yeah, I, and, I think there are better ones. Agreed, and I think so. So that's the that is kind of the long the long way to get to the point that a more effective me- message I think that the OCR could have put out was, you know, you, you certainly need to have relevant and, and up-to-date education about social engineering threats. However, you ha- also have to recognize that those, you know, th- that that is a, uh, a control. It's not really even a control. It is, limited in its effectiveness and therefore you need to be implementing designing and implementing something that is a backstop and and that's not here i mean that doesn't that doesn't come up it's this is this is all about training and i have a have a a really big problem with that and not that, to be incredibly cynical about it but this is where i go back to wondering if we're learning about phishing defense from the vendors who are selling us things like training. 
No, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, as, as opposed to taking a look at the actual effectiveness of various things. And, and we've had plenty of debates on this show about that from, from training to fishing simulation to whatever it is. I think each of those individual vendors in the training and simulation space or in the technical control space all feel that their solution is the best because vendors define the problem as the problem they can solve. But we have to look at what really works in the real world. And in my experience, it's a combination of all three, but, but heavy reliance on the technical controls. So, so why do you think, and, and I, I, I agree to an extent, why do you think it is that the OCR would pay attention to vendors who are peddling training and not vendors who are peddling technical controls? I don't know. I, I could I mean, speculate. It's a, it's a rhetorical yeah, question. Yeah, I don't but. know. I mean, I could speculate that we do training for so many other things, government mandated, and, and the way the government thinks is, you know, you've got to, you know, I work for banks, so I do all sorts of anti-money laundering training and you know, diversity training and uh, OFAC limited countries that we're not allowed to do business with training, and these are all mandated by the government, and so. It could be the way the government thinks is, you know, you tell somebody something and you hold them accountable to what you're telling them. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's all I got. I, I don't I don't have any other insights. And I could be completely wrong that they're echoing vendor. I, I just in general have a hot button with we seem to take our best practices, quote unquote, from what vendors are telling us to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, it's, and they it's, have a vested interest. Right. And, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, but I, I don't know. I don't know that to be the case here. It just just gave me a chance to wander off down that gully for a minute. <laughs> well, we we kind of uh, beat that one into the into a pulp. So m- moving on to the next story, which is a little related. This one comes from Info Security Magazine, and the, the title is "Anthem Medicare Patients Hit with Breach." And there isn't a there isn't a ton to say here, except that uh, a vendor of Anthem named Launchpoint Ventures uh, apparently was performing an unrelated investigation after they were um, they were informed about malfeasance of one of their or potential malfeasance of one of their employees, and in uh, in performing an investigation they they realized that this employee apparently had had sent the personal data or PHI data of and that this particular article doesn't mention the number but i believe it was about 19,000 uh, anthem patients to his personal email address and there's no at this point any there's no indication of why he would have done that or um you know <laughs> what or, or if it was misused, I think at the time of, of this writing, there was no evidence that it was being misused. But it certainly sounds like this particular employee, this was not an accidental situation. It, it as far as we can tell, it's um, you know th- this person apparently is in police custody for for other unrelated things. Uh, but you know the 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 thing that got me thinking and both in the context of HIPAA but also probably even more important in the context of the GDPR and a lot of this data is is becoming like toxic waste or you know like you know it's uh you know radioactive yeah you're almost better off deleting it whenever possible yeah or or you know, putting it into some kind of an environment. I'm thinking like the, uh, you know, the, the the sci-fi movies that you see where you know you have to put your hands through the gloves, you know, that go through the wall, and you can only work with whatever's right. on the other. You know, you you can you, you can't actually get to whatever you're working with. And I and I'm kind of wondering if at the end of the day, now I know we can't apply this in every case, right? But at the end of the day, it seems like that's Ultimately, the only way that you're really going to get a control on the data, I mean, you, you you can do you can use things like endpoint DLP, and you know you can 
you know, you can certainly, you know, try to detect and prevent people from, you know, logging to webmail and sending a file with, you know, data off to their email address or putting it onto a USB drive. But if you've got if you've got a malicious actor, and who's you know who is determined to steal your data, I don't think DL, endpoint DLP is really going to solve that. I mean, there's there's just too many well, ways. It, it keep it keeps the honest people honest, right? Yeah, I mean, you password protect the zip file. <laughs> you know, it's, it just raises the bar. It makes it makes the the honest people honest and the the dumb crooks easier caught. But is it a hundred percent control? No. Right, right. But you know, it, it now it's unclear. It's unclear that in a in a instance where you have an employee who's gone rogue and they're committing criminal acts, I don't know how HIPAA, you know, how the HIPAA laws view that. I mean, is is this company going to get fined because they didn't have a control in place to prevent this person? Or, you know, because they didn't properly train that person. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, and then you know, in, in the in the GDPR world, similar question, right? It, you know, I certainly I don't think a company whose employee has has committed a criminal act is going to be subject to a four percent, you know, a fine of four percent of the revenue. But you know, at the end of the day, they're, you know, the data has been the data has been misappropriated, and that's what the whole law is intended to prevent. HIPAA is a special kind of hell. That's what I've decided. Oh, it is. It absolutely <laughs> is. I, I have enough trouble in the financial world. I don't think I can handle the the, the HIPAA world. Um, and you know, in and GDPR is is kind of coming along. In a nope. La 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 la. I'm not listening. That doesn't exist. <laughs> Sticking my head in the sand. Uh, so so anyway, I was the, the the reason I wanted to bring this up is I I, I was. I was reading this and I got to thinking, you know, there are certain kinds of data that are like, you know, radioactive isotopes that we should, you know, if, if it's super important for, uh, you know, to protect, we, we probably need to, to construct environments where they can't pull the data out. You know, yeah, and there's, and there's, there's other, there's ways you can do that. And even that's not perfect. Right. Um, because you have, you know, cell well, phone pictures a, of, of this your... This is a straight-up ease of use versus security discussion almost. True. True. You know, the, the data is useful in some way, shape, or form to the business. They want to do something with it, whether it's, you know, somehow do reports off it or process it or archive it or, you know, I don't know, something yep. versus m making it unavailable for these sorts of problems. Right. Right. You know, if, if if they really didn't need it, they could archive it off the tape and move it to a Iron Mountain facility and you know have a thirty day SLA to recover it. Right. But then people lose tapes. So <laughs> it would there's be, that. It would fall off the truck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, the the last story for today comes from the Register, and the title is Australian Bank Buggy Software Made Us Miss Money Laundering Scam. Oops. Uh, so, in uh, in Australia, kind of similarly to here in the U.S., financial institutions have to report transactions of over ten thousand dollars to the government. And uh, this this bank, um, Australian Common Australia's Commonwealth Bank, is the institution in question here. Apparently, operates a network of ATMs, and uh, they they had they have some software that automates the disclosure, the, the, the reporting of those financial transactions over $10,000. And um, uh, apparently in 2012, May of 2012, they implemented some software changes which broke that functionality. And it wasn't fixed until September of 2015, so over three years later. And in that in that time, there were 53,500 transactions, uh, ATM transactions, by the way, of over $10,000. And by the way, ATMs down there must be a little different than they are here because... Well, it's those Bitcoin ATMs that, that help you out. 
<laughs> that could be because uh, I I don't know that in the U.S. you can do anything that's over ten thousand bucks or anything close to ten thousand bucks. For the record, Jerry's doing a wonderful job of keeping his composure as my cat is crawling all the way up and down me while we're on the show tonight. Yes. <laughs> Fiona apparently wants to be part of the show. And she's climbing up my shoulder to make sure she's noticed. It's, a good, it's, it's too bad it's not a video show. But yeah, I, I agree when I read that they were doing $10,000 transactions via ATM. And then I was thinking maybe it was transfers. They were going to an ATM and... and and transferring from one account to another, not actually depositing or withdrawing $10,000. Maybe so. I mean, you know, also maybe it was, maybe it's businesses doing like the, you know, the, the deposit where you, you deposit the, the days, oh, that's a good point. you know, the day's uh, sales or I don't know, whatever. Um, the, the, that's not the point. The point is that the, the, the bank here had developed a control, a software based control, which, met a regulatory obligation and didn't realize they, they, they made a change and didn't realize that control stopped working. And it, it occurred to me that we see this happen a lot in it security. You know, you're, yeah. you're you'll update a IPS device or, you know, a, a you know, a, a server or something. And all, all of a sudden it stops reporting. And if you're not attentive, you know, it can go a long, long time. Until Krebs calls you up and you realize you're not collecting logs anymore. Well, and this is a tough one because the, the easier answer is, well, just have some sort of control that double checks that your control is working or just have some sort of quiet alert mechanism when you stop getting alerts. But IT changes so rapidly and it's not stable enough and consistent enough to easily do that. And things slip through the cracks as complex as we are. But for things that really, really, really matter, you might want to have some secondary layer of control to assure that your alerts are still working, whether it's some sort of fake transaction that's supposed to trigger on a monthly basis or something for the stuff that really, really matters. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's that's the, the point that I wanted to raise as well. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, I stole, uh, your, stole your thunder. No, I'm sorry. Uh, other than, than you know, $10,000 seems like it. that's kind of an outdated number because I know that's, I think that's the deal here in the U.S. too. So, yeah, I think that came into being during the the '80s with the war on drugs. Yeah, but ten thousand dollars was a whole worth a whole lot more than it is now. Yeah, yeah, true. And I think now they they say it's for money laundering and anti terrorism purposes and such. So, in many ways, not changing the figure allows them to track even smaller amounts of real money. Yeah, but you know, in thirty years, ten thousand dollars will be you know what a loaf of bread costs. Uh huh. That's just a government man keeping an eye on you. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> they want to know what you're buying, what you're doing, who you're talking to, what kind of podcast you're recording. They want to know. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. So anyway. One other quick update uh, since we talked about it last week. So Malware Tech, the Marcus Hutchins story, who was arrested for writing <laughs> malware, uh, supposedly, is out on bond and bail. He got a $30,000 bail. But can't leave the U.S. and will be facing more more of his court proceedings in Wisconsin. But I briefly looked over what they alleged during his bail hearing, and it does not look good from what the government is saying. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I've, I've read some of the analysis of um, uh, because the, the transcripts of his uh, you know of his initial hearing were released a couple of days ago and you know it, it it does it does definitely not seem encouraging which is you know bad news but at the but at the same time the way the characterization of the prosecutor does seem a lot different than what than the the indictment read right because the indictment right. basically said you know he he created banking malware for sale and if memory serves the you know the transcript basically said that you know he uh, he included he wrote code that was used in malware that was that was sold <laughs> so it's a little you know it's a little unclear there is um there is some scuttle that um that he may and uh, he may accept a plea 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, don't know. Uh, yeah, it's it's complicated. That. There's reports that he admitted to this during police interrogation. Uh, don't know how accurate that is. And there's also uh, we know for a fact that he pled not guilty. So that could be building up to plea. Who knows? Uh, these things take a long time, and and the truth is rarely uh, the first couple of reports that come out. Yeah, and you know, there's there's some um, some people have have found old IRC transcripts that purport to be him, uh, you know, involved in the in <laughs> once the again. Sale. And so you know, Attrib- attribution is hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's very difficult to know these things based on you know. But you know, what, one of the one of the issues with the court system is it's it's really not about whether or not you did a thing. It's about whether or not through the process of, you know, the court, the, the, you know, the legal process, you can convince a jury that you did or did not do it. And, you know, in the constructs of all of the, 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 the rules and, and whatnot of how those proceedings happen. And, and sometimes that doesn't have a lot to do with whether or not you actually did it, unfortunately. Sad but true. So sad but true. Anyway, and on that cheery note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is uh, that is the show for today. Um, you can find links to the stories we talked about on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at defensivesec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at lurg, and me on Twitter at maliciouslink. And with that, we will talk again hopefully next week. And thanks to all our Patreon donors. You guys are awesome. Yes, thank you much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.